0: Hi, and welcome today to Irene Borger here at the New School at Commonweal. Really happy to have you here. Thank you. Many of you may have already read the introduction to Irene that was on our website, but I just want to tell you a little bit about her. Aside from being my very good friend, and I'm lucky to have her as that in my life, she's also been a teacher to me, as she has been to many other people. She was a pioneer in the field of AIDS writing which became a modality that many AIDS organizations in our despair uh, during the early days of the epidemic used to work with people who were either in the throes of having the disease themselves or who were related to people who had AIDS. She started the AIDS Project LA writing project, uh, and took it a full 10 years into a masterwork really that's reflected in a book uh, over on the table that's there for you at the end of this um, time together. And she's really, at this point in her career, gone with that same sort of um, care and um, uh, intellectual rigor. gone into other kinds of writing workshops uh, all over the country. We're lucky to have her come to the Bay Area about three times a year, Uh, but she also teaches and has for many years at the Smith Center in Washington, D.C., our sister organization there, and goes to other places in the country as well. Um, Any of you who go to Rancho La Puerta You can see Irene there a couple of times a year, lucky people that you might be. Uh, Her work has appeared uh, as a writer in the Wall Street Journal, in um, the magazine O. Uh, It's also um, been a feature of the Architectural Digest. She's a really talented writer uh, about the visual arts, as well as being uh, a literary aficionado and somebody who loves words. It's a delight to have her with us. Thank you. Mm I wanted to start really by reading um, an excerpt from an interview that you gave some years ago and to ask you to think about back to those early days when you first were starting to do the kind of work at AIDS Project LA. What was it like? Who were you meeting? And what kinds of things did you learn? But here's the quote first. She was asked about what she learned from her experience conducting what was called a residency. But I'll just say it was the writing program. And you said, conducting a residency is not simply about planning and teaching writing sessions. When I first began the work and mentioned to a staff person that someone had just died, I recall that he said to me, don't worry. When it's the 100th one, you won't feel a thing was horrified. Now, with the the number up to 28, I understand his coping mechanism. But what I've learned from doing this residency is that first you'll have a lot of fun, your heart will get bigger, and it will often break. You'll weep in your car. You'll get to be exquisitely good at giving eulogies. You'll know the perfect poems to bring in, to calm, to inspire, to create fearlessness, to challenge to allow rage. You may go through a stage when you can't tolerate party chatter when hospital visits seem more real. If you're lucky, you quickly realize that the stakes are high, that you always must come artistically and emotionally prepared. You can't afford to waste anyone's time. <clears throat> it may be their last group before they're back in the hospital. It may be only three hours in the week that they are inspired, listened to, or taken away from their daily pain. You learn you'd better get enough sleep, and usually you don't. And if you're lucky, you get really good at listening, particularly to what is nascent on the page to what runs between the lines. You learn painfully to set boundaries, and you learn not to give your home phone number out to everyone. After years of doing this, you begin to realize that You're not a terrible, selfish person for wanting some time to yourself. It's enough to give your writer's gifts in the workshop. I'll just stop there. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in doing the work and what it was like.
1: Um, I was on my first retreat, my first silent retreat with Jack Hornfield. It was 1989, and it was at the Lama Foundation, which figures in the story. And um, it was... I think it was the day, but it was a week-long retreat. It was the day before the it ended, and I heard—I really did hear a voice. And I, I've heard a voice twice in my life, and that was that was one of the times. And the voice said, "Why don't you start a writing workshop for people with?" And I couldn't have said AIDS then because they didn't use the word AIDS; they called it ARC. And uh, I went home, and I mentioned it to a friend of mine who worked for cultural affairs at. Uh, city of Los Angeles, and I, with Dina Metzger's help, she was my teacher at the time. I, I wrote a grant, and I got the grant, and it really. Um, there's a word in Yiddish that's beshert, it means meant to be, and uh, you know the kind of frame is that that the burning house book, the book is called From a Burning House, which came from a an article that Louise Steinman wrote, and she said the work that comes up from this workshop are like jewels rescued from a burning house, mm-hmm. and the So the workshop started in 1990. In 1996, um, Simon & Schuster published the book, and the very week of publication, there were terrible wildfires in northern New Mexico, and all of Lama burned except for the meditation hall. So Mm -hmm. it was, like, from a burning house. And, um, you know, of course, I had no idea what I was getting into when I started it.
0: So in ten years, many jewels... Can you tell us a few of those jewels, some of the people who you met, and what
1: kinds of stories they may have told you? Um, the person who comes to mind at the moment is was named Tony Grimalia, and um, he 'd been a waiter and an actor, and i, I don 't think he 'd written, but every time he wrote something that meant something to him, he would get so nervous he would tremble, and he would apologize for what he had written, and then he would read it, and it would, it would really break the hearts of everyone in the group. There was, um, you know, this, some of his pieces are in the book, and there's one piece where he's writing as if he was in his hospital bed. You know, I still, it's funny, I, um, you know, when you were reading that, which comes from like the middle 90s, um, I, I just start to get the feeling again uh, from it, and so he's, he's writing as if he's in the bed, and he's writing about what it's like at night when all the visitors leave. And he's listening, you know, he's listening to the sounds in the other rooms. It's, you know, it was so, you know, but the thing is about the workshop, it was, it was, it was, there was, there there really was as much laughter. And so, that, you know, this, here we are with 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And, you know, I would never, I think I once did after, after, at some point, and it probably was a terrible idea to do, I asked... Uh, we got to the point of telling stories about how people got infected. Well, you can imagine that was very, very loaded. But, you know, 99.9% of the time an exercise had nothing to do with that. And people might write about green high heels, you know, um, or their mothers and their first dates and watching somebody else die. I mean, it was, it was, it was very funny. I mean, there's, there was another man named Doug Bender He wrote a a wonderful piece called Tubes about having a Hickman catheter and what it was like to go to the gym. And while he was sick, he would say he would, like, lift a few toothpicks and then go home. Um, So his pen name was Mimi C'est Moi. (laughs) So, you know, we laughed a lot together.
0: I'm remembering the piece in the book written by a friend of both of ours called Skin Stuff, Phil Curtis's piece, which is a beautiful piece and having... Um, that sort of laughter and um, tearing as well um, leads me back to why did you entitle this time together 10,000 um, Joys and
1: 10,000 Sorrows? Well, I think, I think it's probably the number of stories we have. <laughs> and, you know, nobody gets out of here free. And I, I think there's a lot of pro, I think there's a lot of projection about um, idealization of of people's lives from the outside. Um, I mean, especially in something like a celebrity culture. But um, don't we all? You know, don't we all have that experience of, of sorrow and joy? And um, and what an incredible thing it is to sit in a room with other people and, and hear those stories. So as you work with people. I wish you would share a little bit
2: about
0: the process that you use to bring those ten thousand joys and sorrows out,
1: so that people feel safe. Oh well, maybe I'll maybe I'll say something about like what I have come to understand about the creative process. Um, I guess it al- it always fascinated me, um, even from the time I was a child, that things would like pop in my head, and and they would be so they'd be beautiful. Like I remember. Um, I remember looking at a book once, and I was seeing the word wonderful, and I kept looking at the word because it seemed like it was glowing. And I thought that was such an incredible thing. And and I think when I would do things like like go to the... I grew up in New York when I, grew, when I went to the ballet. It, had, it seemed to have nothing to do with, like, taking class. It always seemed so magical and fully formed. <laughs> so, let's see, by the time I got to graduate, I was always, I. I um, I worked with somebody in in graduates in as an undergraduate. who was really studying creativity from a social psychology point of view. And when I went to graduate school in dance ethnology, I was sitting in a classroom um, studying rites of passage, rituals of transition, culturally. And at the same time, I was reading a book that was it was a book of it was a book of photographs by Richard Avedon and interviews with this theater company in New York that Andre Gregory was part of. He was the head of the company, really. And they were doing, they were doing Alice in Wonderland. And as I read this, the, the, as I read the, the description of what, what it was like in first-person accounts, over two years, this company rehearsed for two years. They improv for two years without even putting on a performance. And it began to drive some people crazy. And at some point, when Andre Gregory went away, everybody exploded and they were furious. And eventually, they put on this really remarkable, inventive play. But while I was reading this book and reading the experiences of these individuals and studying rites of passage, I saw there was a parallel between the individual creative process and rituals of transition. So if you'll bear with me. okay, so. In, in like the beginning of the, of the 20th century, Arnold van Gennep wrote about rites of passage, and he saw that in traditional societies, despite different cultural differences, there seemed to be this pattern of threes. And one was separation from the old, whatever the form was. And the, next, the third stage is called um, re-aggregation, coming back transformed. But there's this middle period called the liminal period, and it comes from lim, L-I-M-N, threshold, really betwixt and between. So Victor Turner, like later in the, a lot of other people, but Victor Turner really looked at anthropologists, looked at the liminal period. What's the liminal period? Mm-hmm. And, and for example, like some of the metaphors are um, the chrysalis, the womb, the cave, the darkness. And you know, in creative process, um, in cartoons, you might see like the light bulb go on. Well, it's that. And it's like the kind of Eureka, I found it. But now, if you look at... so, In traditional societies, you have um, often elders to protect them. I'm I'm holding my hands in a circle right now as a kind of container. And and what do you do in a liminal period, but you need a certain kind of container. Like even, like let's say somebody's lost their job in, in this economy, and they've left a state of working power... Um, identity in a certain way, and there may be a long period and you don't know how long it's going to last, what do you do to not fall apart? And how do you move into the transformation when you're in some ways out of control? So what I saw with Andre Gregory's company is they were staying in the liminal so long and when Andre Gregory went away, that's when they that's when they freaked out particularly because he wasn't holding the space anymore. Mm. And so um, in the individual process, it seems to me that if you're going to come up with something original or if you're going to surprise yourself, how could you not go through that? So you might start with a trigger and eventually you'll come up maybe with a product. Uh, sometimes I think that's not even important. It's just like, what do you discover going through it? So, so to take this down to a workshop level or... Um, I, always bring in an, I always bring in an exercise. And, and, um, and what I discovered after doing this for a long time, I started reading about flow state and how do you move into flow state where you're unimpeded in your creative output or thinking. Um, it's like a runner's high. And some of the theoretical work on that is that you loosen up and then focus in you do something to loosen up. And in some ways, it's, um, it's moving outside of the critical mind. But then um, narrowing the field of awareness is one of the phrases. Like, um, and as it, a kind of focus. And that's where the work can start to happen. So in the structure of a workshop, I might bring in um, a poem or something funny, maybe, um, or always often something about, um, substituting curiosity for judgment. Like, you know, Gil Fronsdale, um, wonderful meditation teacher in the Bay Area, once said to me on a retreat, in complete lovely innocence, he said, well, you might consider substituting inquiry for judgment. You know, what? so it's really the what if. And so can you go go with the what if? And so I guess what I've learned to do, um, and I learned it from Dina... Metzger, very much, um, is make a safe space. I'm, I'm putting up my hands again in a kind of circle. You know, how do you create an, the container? And it's, I mean, you find this in so many ways, Jean. It's, you find it even when you look at Jung and alchemy. You know, how do you go from base metals into gold? You had to have an alambic. You had to have, in order to transmute, you have to have some kind of vessel which is why, like, therapists close their door or why you have an hour, you have a boundary of time. So that's that's a lot, but that's part of it. That's
0: great. So the, the group becomes, in some ways, a container, and also the um, creative fire, the alchemy, is happening in that liminal space. Um, have you, in your own work, um, seen that, work the same for you. Can you do that for yourself? And, and um, can you tell us a little bit about your own process of writing?
1: Um, <laughs> it's so much harder to do for yourself. Well, it's so much harder for me to do for myself. Um, you know, it's funny, I want to tell you another story before this, and I, I'll work Go my ahead. way back to this. I just Go thought ahead. of this, and I did an exercise, this is a long time ago, um, with a quote from Milan Kundera's The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. And it it has to do with um, how all these, thing ha- all these things happen, the massacres and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but one thing su- supplants another and we forget everything. And so I, I simply asked the question, you know, make a list of things you must remember. And she began to write a story that I didn't know anything about, which was she, um, she wrote for months from different points of view, and she, we held her, you know, but very gently, we just, we listened. And she found her own way to write that. And uh, it had happened many years before, and she'd never written about it. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing that can happen. So for myself, let's see. Um, well, I've made myself go on, on, on retreats. And you've studied with other other kinds of teachers,
0: yeah. too, yeah. not necessarily just writing teachers, teachers who have taught you
1: about that transformative process. Well, what are you thinking? Because you, you know me. You, what are you thinking?
0: Um, what am I thinking? I'm, I'm really thinking about the different influences I've heard you speak about. And I don't necessarily just mean writing, but but being a curator... Uh, of the arts and uh, the director of the Herb Alpert Foundation's awards, um, the Creativity Awards each year. Irene really knows many different mediums, um, film, theater, visual arts, literary arts, uh, and music. And I'm curious who you'll tell us some of those teachers are, who made your process what it
1: is. Well, I think just encountering people who trust their curiosity or trust their curiosity enough to follow it and make it. I, I, was, I stayed at Zen Center um, last night and I, I met someone in the kitchen as we were toasting our bagels, um, this, this young man um, who's studying to be an acupuncturist. And we got to talking and I told him about... Um, watching people's process and really respecting all these artists, not, of, not necessarily whom, all of whom I adored the work, but what I respected enormously was people taking the risk to, to make something and to, to complete it and to put it out in the world. I think that's, I think that's enormous, and I so respect that. Um, when I was in the kitchen... Also, this morning, I started to think about um, poems as remedies as homeopathic remedies
3: yeah.
1: and I was thinking, if you pick the right poem for what someone needs, you see their bodily response mm. it's a kind of relief or an aha or a kind of permission and if you pick the wrong remedy it it uh, it doesn't it doesn't go in it doesn't it doesn't um it's as if the body's impermeable to it, you know, or it's the wrong time for it, so. Ooh.
0: You already signaled me that it would be hard for you to talk about your own work, <laughs> so I'm going to try and
1: circle back and, and,
0: and um, loop you in some other way. Um, you've said about yourself that for many years, I'm going to read this as a quote, for many years my art has been listening, you've said and now you've listened to thousands of writers and artists and students and and people who are ill and people who are in liminal zones. Um, What happens to you when you listen? What's the physical, the emotional, the spiritual? And you're writing a book about listening.
1: Well, you know who pops in my head right now? Marcel Marceau. Mm -hmm. And the first radio interview I ever did was with Marcel Marceau. He was yeah. He talked. He was very talkative, (laughs) and it was he was performing at UCLA, and it was a show called Backstage LA, and we were taping. We were waiting for him to come. He didn't arrive till like a second before we were supposed to start taping, and and he looked like he was completely um, internal. I mean, really, in another universe. And as soon as the as soon as the tape went on, he was present and alert. And engaged, and argumentative, and interesting, and and Marcel Marceau, do you know, do you know that he helped people escape over the Alps during World War II? Really amazing. Anyway, what I, what, when we finished the interview, he immediately vanished. That in that way, he absolutely vanished, and he left, and he was performing that night. And now he knew how to conserve his energy. Mm-hmm. In listening, I feel like I've. You just, you just give yourself over. I think, I mean, it's, there are different kinds of, there's so many different kinds of listening. Like when I was, when I was doing a lot of writing for magazines, you're listening and you, you know, you, it's, it's a, I think it's, it's necessary to go where anyone's taking you. I mean, you have to, maybe you have to write an article so there's certain things you have to cover, but the, in the process of the conversation is where things get discovered. But at the same time, when you're, I don't, I, maybe this is true for therapists, too, you're watching at the same time. Like, um, I would always hear, like, what, what are going to be the pull quotes? You know, oh, like, that's a great quote, you know, for example. But when I'm listening to people's stories, that's different. And I get, on one hand, I, I think that that's the most incredible thing. That the, I mean, the fact that we have, that we have language and that you can say a word like I can say, There's a a poem um, by Thomas Lux that has to do with um, the voice inside of you. And he says something about when you say the word barn, you know, we each see our own barn Mm -hmm. in a sense. We each bring our own barn in. But the fact that I can say barn and maybe you get a picture of a barn. Or if I say black slip, you know, you get a picture of a black slip and you have your own associations. Well, when I'm listening, I always, um, as you know, I always am noting things down. And it's because I, I want to track, I don't want to get lost in the story, which um, one, it's easily to get swept away, but because I'm sitting in the teacher's seat, um, I want to observe what's going on. And I, and I notice, for example, if someone's um, using a certain metaphor all the way through, or I think, I mean, if you think about writing sometimes as a, as a kind of walk, where people then stop, they look around. I mean, not stop writing, but they stop to describe something, then they continue with the story. And sometimes they make a 180-degree turn. Sometimes somebody hits a, a hot button, and they don't want to go there. So literally, like, like, look what happened in this conversation so far. Um, you're trying to get me to talk about my own process of writing, and other things come to my mind, in some ways, to distract me, but they're part of the story, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, let's see, there's, there's so much here. I. Um, but why did I think of Marcel Marceau? I think I thought of Marcel Marceau for a, a particular reason right now, and that is I noticed that I've gotten to the point where I really need to listen to my own writing. And I can't be available to listen really well to other people at this point unless I'm, unless I'm listening to my own writing. And does that t- go back to what you said about him knowing how to conserve his energy? yes. Yes, and I think, I think, I mean, where does this book on listening come from? In, in one level, it comes from the fact that it's an intimate, beautiful process of people, of getting to listen to somebody else's story and be told a story. There's, I think, this extraordinarily beautiful reciprocity. And I love the phrase, to entertain someone else's idea. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's like, it's true. Are you the host Or are you the guest? When someone tells you a story, are you the host? Are you the guest?
0: We're listening to our guest this week, Irene Borger, The New School. Thank you for listening. I wanted to go back um, about, um, I'm still going to try about your process a little bit more. In the write-up for today's workshop, uh, Irene um, wrote something in the beginning that I pasted into the description, she mentioned something about playfulness, about playfulness playfulness coming forward in the writing. And I'm wondering if you talk to us a little bit about your own playfulness in writing. How have you had fun
1: doing it? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, So I was on a retreat, a silent retreat, with Yvonne Rand. And we began, actually, after Yvonne, um, I think it's after Yvonne... Um, had cancer and she needed to conserve her energy instead of having a, a like a full day of sitting and walking meditation and work meditation we would spend the afternoons doing creative work and everyone did something whether they were painting or making sculpture or something and i I actually you know would brought my computer and usually in, you know in traditional retreats you don't read or write um, but it's it's actually a fantastic experience and I had been I had once gone to, a, like shortly before then. I had gone to this therapist who works with people with creative blocks and I had done a lot of work on this book on listening but I had stopped. And it, it bothered me that I had stopped, but I just didn't feel like it. And so I went to this woman and she said to me, unless you have fun writing it, you're not going to write it. And so when, so on this retreat, I decided, okay, I was going to have fun. And I would give myself these teeny little exercises. Like I said, okay, I'm going to write about the ear for 10 minutes, but I'm going to do it in a way that's really fun. And then things opened up. They they just broke through. I was having a blast, and creative ideas would come to me um, that I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. I didn't get to otherwise. And then I would notice, I'd check in I'd say, oh, okay, I'm not having fun anymore. What would I do if I was having fun? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that... Like, in this creative blockbusting chart, it says, waste no effort evaluating early, protect vulnerable beginnings. But it says, waste no effort evaluating early. It doesn't mean you don't evaluate. It doesn't mean you don't go back and clean things up, think deeper, all that stuff. But you must have that playfulness. And, again, looking at etymology, like, etymology is really um, both illuminating and it's... It's fun. And I'll tell you... Okay, I'll tell you, like, two words. Like, one word Mm. is the word bereft. And when my friend... After my friend Philip died, I remember looking up the word bereft and being so struck. And the Indo-European root was related to being... Things having been ripped away or torn quickly. And it was... It was such an extraordinary um, revelation to see not only that there was this physical component to it, but also what you know what gave me comfort. It was that it was such an old word, and I felt like that it was part of human experience. That so many humans had gone through the experience. So it was kind of like what you know what Jack Cornfield said to my friend Philip when you think of when you're experiencing your pain, think of it as the pain that you are in a sense, taking part in or that's working its way through you, but that you're not so alone. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And it's funny, um, you know, in my family when I was growing up, in the middle of dinner, my fa- if we were talking about a word, my father would make me go to the dictionary.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I thank him for that.
0: You said two words. Do you remember? Oh, two words. No,
1: I don't remember. Okay. <laughs>
0: Well, yesterday in our um, writing workshop with Irene, she brought the word shelter. I do shelter. remember. I do remember.
1: <laughs> okay, sorry, don't forget what you're saying. Oh. <laughs> okay, it's the word um, ludere, It's the word ludere, which means to play, and it's um, it's Latin. It mean, that's the verb ludere. L u d e r e. L u d e r e. And guess what? The word is in English that comes from that. Ludicrous. Mm. ludicrous. So that's the idea of liminality too, which has to do with foolishness. Foolishness and wisdom. Mm. Foolishness and wisdom.
0: So foolishness and wisdom, very much a, a part of how she's slipping in and out of my my um, questions about her own work. Um, the kind of um, uh, I want to say deeper work um, that you have Facilitated in other people uh, has uh, often been um, through that foolishness and wisdom, that playfulness. Um, is it something that you learned from someone in your own life, or did you just come in with it? Is it your original gift?
1: Well, you know, it's funny what comes up. I really, I always liked playing as a kid, I always liked theater. And I always liked um, playing roles. I thought it was really fun to be characters. And even, I mean, I have a nephew who's almost 17 now, and he was about, I don't know, eight years old. I, he was playing with these puppets, and I came in, and I just took one of the puppets, and it was just, it was so much, it's so much fun to play with other people. I'm not answering your question. That's right. <laughs> you just keep going. That's fine. Would you ask me the question again? <laughs> How did I learn? How did I learn this business about about playfulness and foolishness? Mm-hmm. I think because I think because it's so much fun to write, ultimately, that it's really it's really fun. And you know why? Because you discover things. Like I love the fact that things like just pop up, and that they're real. That they're teachers. And you know, there's a story. There's a teaching story that I could tell you, which is I was taking part in a. I was, I was a fellow it sounds very grand but it was also a grand experience. I was a fellow at the James P. Shannon Leadership Institute. It was kind of R and; R for people um, in leadership positions in nonprofits. And w- one of the things we did together was play. And one thing we did was we were, we were, there were about 20, 20 of us, and we were in groups of four. And they were, I'm holding up something, <laughs> I'm having the muscle memory. Um, we were given a block of wood. I don't know how many inches that was, but it was a big block of wood, a big, um, there was a big nail sticking in the top, and the nail had a head, and then we were given a whole handful, like quite a handful of nails. And we were told that we had to put the nails somehow on this structure, but you couldn't lean them on the wood. And you couldn't use tape, you couldn't use string, and that it was doable. And, you know, what, how do you do that? What came up for me right then, like, I had this image, and it was, I said, I said, voladores. And it was, or I should say, voladores, you know, um, and it was, it's this, it's this, it was, it was an ethnographic film I saw when I was in graduate school of this ritual in Mexico where men uh, are dressed in colorful costumes and they are flying they're attached to a pole, like a big, big, big maypole, and they're flying on, on strings around it. Wow. It's quite beautiful. And, and my reaction at the time was, huh, what did I think of that? And, like, I don't know how to fix anything. And so, there's, like, manually, I couldn't figure it out. And so, eventually, somebody realized that you could hang the nails with little heads on the big-headed nail, and they would fly off the top. And I had seen, in other words, I had seen the image. The solution had come. And if I had simply said to somebody, hey, you know, I just got this image, and if I had, like, taken a napkin and drawn the image, somebody else would have pitched in, and we would have, we would have won. <laughs> we would have been the first people to win, <laughs> you know? So, and in a situation like that, it, it doesn't matter, but it was a real lesson for me about, you know, trusting an image, trusting a voice, and not. because look, the work that came from the, the, the work that I'm not only more proud of than anything else, but that that used like every single squeeze to the last drop ounce of me at you know at AIDS Project LA, um, that came from listening to a voice. You know? It was, like it wasn't my idea, <laughs> It wasn't my idea. But I followed it, and so that, you know.
0: So, we're going to ask all of you in the room to have some fun, some playful time, and to follow some voices that you may or may not know are there, and to spend a little time now with Irene in the following kind of way. Um, She's going to give an intro to some writing time, and then we're going to spend 15 minutes doing the writing. Um, We'll come. Um, back to the recording and um, those who would like to share we have some time to do that I'm sure everybody's not going to be able to but um, we're hoping to get a number of you to share with us and then and you don't have to right right <laughs> right absolutely not you don't have to read anything that you've written uh, and then we will do a little discussion and close so people who have pen and paper um, Great. And those who need it, we have some for you up here.
1: So I think I'll, I'll tell you um, like an anecdote or two and a poem or two, and we will move it, we'll move into writing. So once I was reading in the New York Times, I was reading um, a profile of this man named Jose Quintero. He was a theater director in New York, and he did a lot of Eugene O'Neill Wonderful, wonderful theater director. And he, um, he got esophageal cancer. And he said that the thing that upset him about it the most was not dying, but that he wasn't going to be able to communicate. He wasn't going to be able to speak, and that that had been his entire life. And so he, he got a cervox in order to be able to speak, and he went out. And he relayed to the reporter that one day he was in a department store, and a little child came up to him and said to him, Are you from another planet? Because you know what that speech sounds like. And he said he was. And he said after several similar encounters, he returned to his creative life. And so he did, until, until he did die. But he went back to work after this response. So this is a great, I think, an example of what, what is beginner's mind? You know, what is not the state of not knowing or liminality? And it's like that thing, you know, what if you substituted curiosity or inquiry for judgment? It's that. I mean, look at, look at the healing of that moment. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is, there was a... Uh, this, this actually... Um, moved me very much when I, when I first read this many, many years ago. A study that was done at, at Cal. It was the Institute for Personality Research, which I don't think exists anymore. And a man named, social psychologist named Frank Barron, did a study of people in all different walks of life. And he asked them, I mean everything, you know, mathematicians, musicians... Physicists. I don't know if he, I really don't know whether he had working-class people or whether they were professionals of all kinds. I don't know that. But you'd hope he would have, like, mechanics and all kinds of things. And he asked them, who is the most creative? Who would you name as most creative in your field? And then he was able to, he and his team were able to interview as many people as they could. And one of the things they found when they did psychological tests on all these people who were considered most creative in their field was that they could, what he called, delay closure on a problem. They could tolerate the anxiety of not coming up with a solution quickly. You see? They could tolerate this, liminal, this liminality. <laughs> And I think I'm going to insert something here. I mean, I have lots, I've, I've come across this all the time with people in the arts, but it's not only people in the arts at all. It's all of us. And there was an article in the New York Review of Books by Jerome Groupman several years ago, the cardiologist, and he was talking about how he went to a conference of cardiologists and they, what they wanted to discuss was um, when they had not made good diagnoses, when they had failed to make good diagnoses. And I, I made a note of that. He said, we began by discussing not clinical successes, but failures. And he talked about why would that happen? Why would a cardiologist not diagnose well? And he said there were these pitfalls, biases, that cloud logic. When we make judgments under conditions of uncertainty and time pressure, sometimes a person overvalues the first data he encounters and so is skewed in his thinking. Or where recent or dramatic cases quickly come to mind and color judgment about the situation at hand. Or where stereotypes can prejudice thinking so conclusions arise not from data but from such preconceptions. And he was actually worried about the healthcare system because he said he thought with the time pressure that people weren't mm-hmm. allowed to really muck around at all. Um, and I have to do something, an insertion here, because we had talked about this. You, um, Jean had asked me about narrative medicine. Narrative medicine, this wonderful new field, um, which is really the brainchild of Rita Sharon, C-H-A-R-O-N, at Columbia University, who's both a doctor and an English scholar, literary scholar. And she has, she's really been training her, her, her uh, students, med students, to... Pay attention to their patients in a very different kind of way, and they keep something called a parallel chart so they 're not only charting the meds but they 're charting people 's lives and it 's a way to sensitize them and I went to a um, oh i don 't know it was a three day workshop last June on narrative medicine at columbia university medical school and when, and I was it was like ninety eight percent doctors or ninety eight percent healthcare professionals and a few of us who were not and what I saw was that it was a a situation where doctors were so used to having to be right, or having not being able to um, not know how difficult the pressure of that is on on it all, on anyone. Um, so that's that's in there. Um, here's a quote from Somerset Maugham, the novelist Somerset Maugham. There are three rules to writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> so, um, and let me. Let me, um, this is a poem, it's a, f- it's a f- fragment of a poem from, um, called Poetry by Pablo Neruda. And it's really, it's, it's, it encapsulates this. I did not know what to say. I could not speak. And something ignited in my soul. Fever or unremembered wings. And I went my own way, deciphering that burning fire. I wrote the first bare line, bare, without substance, pure foolishness, pure wisdom of one who knows nothing. And then I saw the heavens unfastened and open. Here's another version. This is uh, Gary Snyder's, I can't remember, I better read it because I don't remember if I teeny little poem, but beautiful poem, called How Poetry Comes to Me by Gary Snyder. How poetry comes to me it comes blundering over the boulders at night. It stays frightened outside the range of my campfire. I go to meet it at the edge of the light. So here we have darkness and light again. But it comes blundering. It's not fully formed necessarily at all. But I go to meet it. I do do something. I, don't, I engage in the process. I get going. But I, you know, in some ways, I take what comes. So what else? So I'm just going to throw this out because it's, it's so interesting, I think. Do you know the words diagnosis and narrate come from the same root? It's G-N-O, like gnosis. So interesting. And so, you know, when I was mentioning before about poems as antidotes, poems as remedies, in some ways I think when, like right now, um, you're, I'm going to ask you to make a, a couple of lists. And inside your list, I, I would wager is the remedy you need. So, this comes, and it's, you may know this poem by Raymond Carver, it's called Late Fragment. Very, and it's the last poem that he wrote before he died. And I'll, re, I'll say it twice, and I have copies for you. And did you get what you wanted in this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. And did you get what you wanted in this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. So, now it's your turn. Okay? Does does anyone need paper? You're all set. Okay. Would you write down and you just it's for yourself. You don't need to read this out loud. Write down <coughs> two times when you felt <coughs> beloved. Two times. You're making a list. If more come to you by all means do, but write down two times you felt beloved. Beloved on the earth, that may mean something else to you. Okay, just, just see what comes up. You just need to make, just note it down. Um, does anyone need more time? Okay. Now, well I think, just leave, leave that list alone. Um, I think one of the reasons this poem is so interesting is because of those two words, even so. Did you get what you wanted in this life, even so? Which I suppose goes back to the 10,000 sorrows, right? Even so. Who doesn't have an even so? So if you were going to make a list of even so's, what would be on your list of even so? Did you get what you wanted in this life, even so? You could put down one thing or a few. Okay, now if you feel like it, make a horizontal line with some space around it, okay? Just make a a blank, a horizontal line with some space around it. And now, this is the Chinese restaurant (coughs) exercise, will you pick one from list A and one from list B? Pick one. Beloved from the Beloved list and pick one from the Even So list, okay? And that horizontal line is a timeline. You know, those timelines you used to do in school, like 1066, the Magna Carta, 1492, and so um, later comes to the right, earlier comes to the left. Would you, if you can, um, write down which happened for of these two things, which is which is earlier and which is later. So everyone has two things on the timeline? Okay. Okay, so, Ken, um, our recording engineer, asked me before about whether, um, whether what we were doing was really journal writing. And it's, it's actually, I don't think of it as journal writing at all, because um, I think this is where story comes in. And and shape, like Allen Ginsberg talks about the natural shapeliness of the mind. And so one thing I noticed, I noticed once when I was reading, there was this uh, story by, um, oh, I can't think of her name. But the first line was, the year I began to say vase instead of vase, a man I barely knew nearly accidentally killed me. (laughs) And I... I, put, I, I, I used that as a writing exercise, and it was incredibly interesting what happened. People's, it naturally seemed to be a way in, and there were two things. Um, the year I began to say Vaz instead of vase, a man I barely knew nearly accidentally killed me. Then I started to see those sentences all over the place. All, and I, I always think of them as braided sentences. Like, listen to this one. This came from a book, I'm just named by Patricia, who wrote a book about. Diane Arbus, but this book was about her father. The, huh? Thank you, Patricia Bosworth. And this sentence in there was, the night before my father committed suicide, comma, my mother gave a dinner party. So in there are all these sentences. So what I would like you to do is take your two things and put them in the same sentence using the word before or after. I'll give you an example. Like I, because I, I know sometimes this, this kind of sounds tricky, but so my two things were um, like being in this room right now, and being hospitalized when I was you know a little kid, and so I could say, you know, I could say thirty years after, you know, thirty years after blah blah blah, this this or thirty years before, okay? So please. Write, write the sentence, and it doesn't have to be a gorgeous sentence, because you can, y- y- and let it go where it goes. This is the thing. Let it go wherever it goes. You may be taken somewhere else. We're going to write for about 12 minutes. Let it go where it goes. So you just are starting with a sentence. And that's what it was like loosening up, then focusing in. This is just the way in, okay? And if you, if you have something else coming to you, listen to that. It's much more important. Or if you just want to take one of them and go with it, go. Okay? And just the thing is, let yourself keep writing. What you could try is go for the next 12 minutes without doing a single period. Okay? And we'll let you know a couple minutes before the time is up. Okay, you want to finish up and come back to the room? A couple of things that I was just thinking. Um, one is that, that, that um, the year I began to say vase instead of vase, it's a story by Amy Hempel. But then I was just thinking, you know, um, when, when we listen to stories, and you may be nervous about reading what you wrote, and you might think, oh, I don't really have anything here. I didn't get anywhere. I mucked around. But you don't really know until you read it out loud, and reading it out loud is really at first for yourself. And you also—that's really that's really what it is at first. Um, I was I was thinking of um, form and how what you wrote. You'll hear some stories that are very clearly there's some kind of uncanny shape that can happen even in ten minutes. Um, it's 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 actually mysterious. But everyone's everyone has a different way of telling a story, and. I'm putting this out here in hopes that somebody listening will have the the answer to this. When I worked at the Jung Institute many years ago, someone walked into the bookstore and had a chart with him. He was a teacher in the LA Unified Schools. And the chart um, had all kinds of designs on it, like um, spirals and zigzags. And I think there were at least 12 designs on there, and each one, he told me, was a different narrative structure, because um, teaching in the LA Unified Schools, there were kids with actually more than 100 languages being spoken, and this was being given to teachers to, to tell them that somebody, just because the way somebody shaped something wasn't wrong, and that somebody might um seemed to be um, telling things that had nothing to do with it, but they actually were related. And I, anyway, I've been looking for this chart ever since. I have no idea who this man was. And um, if you know of this, please. It's, it was the most gorgeous thing, actually. And so, if, so in, I, I, actually, the way that I actually got into doing, another way I got into doing the AIDS work was because I had a yoga teacher named Billy Porter who got sick and died. And a great yoga teacher. And he used to say to everyone in the class, be you, not them. Be you, not them. So um, it's actually, we have some time to read. Okay, so there's something that I noticed. That man, Tony Grimalia, who used to shake when he um, would write something that actually meant something to him, he, he he would make excuses, as other people did too. They would say, Oh, I wasn't feeling well today. I didn't do the exercise. Um, I don't want to go after that person. There would be like endless excuses. And so I made up a rule called the three excuse rule. And this is, we use this in the ongoing groups. And it's like, OK, you can use three excuses and then you read. Because all it is is the critical mind. And you might really want to read, but you think it's not good enough, or whatever it is. You're embarrassed. Or, you know. And obviously, in a situation like this, um, there are stories that you write where you're not ready to share them with anyone else. So you need to be respectful of that, too. Um, but it's, it's, let's see what happened. You know, what happened? Um, who's, who's willing to risk reading, even if you don't think it's so good? OK. So, Stacy, I'm going to, um, I'll just respond maybe with one element to, okay, and then I want to make sure people, there's enough chance to read, but please, thank you.
2: Um, Forty years to the day after I left home all alone, my parents in Europe, me on the bus, I sat with my dying father swimming in a gorgeousness of love I had never yet known. I don't know what got into their heads thinking I would be okay leaving home, the oldest of three daughters, of my mother, the witch, and my father, the geek, without anyone around to hold my hand. Of course, no, there there had been no hand-holding to my recollection. No, of course, no hand-holding to my recollection had ever really... Wait, of course there... I'm just going to read what I wrote. Of course, their hand to my recollection never... There had to my recollection never been any hand-holding to... Date, but one can always hope or imagine or um, wish there was, and I don't remember if they had gone off to Europe, leaving my grandmother Anne to watch over us in the big house of, in Upper St. Clair, no one Jewish but us, for miles around. And this time, thank goodness, the parents were away, and Grandma Anne was sleeping downstairs in their room, not mine where she usually slept because she smoked like a chimney wherever she was. Mm-hmm. And I preferred that it be downstairs and not in my room. She drove me to the bus with my bags on my way to college, just turned 17. I never, I never imagined that it would be any other way than that.
1: Are you surprised by what you
2: wrote? Mm-hmm. Why? Um, what surprised you? It, it, was, um, it was that duality on the, on the line and, um, and just how much came up from that, just how that whole, the whole image of that moment in time. And you know, of course, resentments that I didn't realize I had, things like that. You know,
1: Um.
2: and also, it's not. Also, I have to be honest; it's not entirely true. There's stuff I made up, or made worse than it probably actually was.
1: You never have to give that away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a couple of things. One is, um, you know, when you said you had almost a parenthetical remark with your grandmother smoking. And I thought that was an aside, like a kind of sotto voce, which was really wonderful, and added description. Do um, you know what I'm saying? You, you, you gave an elaboration of your grandmother smoking. A great aunt. Uh, uh, no, oh. so, no, my grandmother, no. no, she smoked grandma like grandma a chimney. Grandmother you, grandmother, yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, she smoked like a chimney. It sounded l- parenthetical, mm-hmm. actually. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know what you can do, actually? You, you, you know, when you're talking about the resentment, what, mm-hmm. if, what if you, like, allowed yourself to tell the story and allowed the resentment to come in in parentheses, uh-huh. like dotted all the way through. Mm-hmm. So you give mm-hmm. yourself permission to do that.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the other thing is that really strikes me is the, le- the leaving home and your father leaving. You know, those two, which is the kind of leaving, leaving home. The ending. The ending. <gasps> do you know the Sharon Olds poem um, it's in the book about her father, and she's, it's about. It's called His Smell, this poem. I think I do. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It, yeah. The very last line is, she's breathing him in, his fragrance, and then he's gone, and she says, it's as if going into exile. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, Thank you. thanks for reading. Sure. Oh, just cry away. <laughs> Thank you. So who doesn't want to follow that but would really like to read? (coughs) Hi, what's your name? My name's Kandasi. Hi. And And would you please read slowly so that you hear it and that we get to take it in? Okay? Do you need to explain anything? No, no, but just if you can do it so that we can hear you on the other side of the room too, okay? Mm -hmm. I felt
5: completely loved and adored by the universe every time i picked up a from the groomer. And this after just being totally ignored and unacknowledged when I greeted another, usually white human being passing me in the street. This perplexes me so. I find it hard to get over this and contemplate its deeper meaning regularly. After all, every animal on the planet in some way acknowledges the presence of another animal in its wake. What is it with humans that we can so easily retreat into a my world only bubble as we walk down the street? My photography instructor, who's also a minister and well-read in philosophy, wrote that the one that one way the eye and the mind work together is that the eye will not see things that it doesn't think should be in the picture or what it's looking at. And other teachers I've been studying in consciousness say that it's important to keep one's attention on what you want to see take form in your world. So maybe that's what's going on. That some of the people I cross paths with don't think I belong or should be in the places and neighborhoods
1: I enjoy frequenting. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I got the chills from what you just wrote. Oh. Don't you putting up your hands like, yeah, you're put, making like, what is it? Yeah, well, there, there was such beauty in that, and you know, I mean, I feel like I mean, you you voice something that, of um, people don't quote often say aloud, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that, you know, I
5: didn't want to bring up or uh, insult or take the discussion any other way. But, so I'm glad that it came off in a way that, you know, you could just feel that.
1: Oh yeah, really feel it. Um, And it's... But it's a human. Other people might feel it too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Because
5: other people might like to be acknowledged or replied hi back to or whatever. When they, but there's something that's
1: going on here that. But look, you know, look at the, the. The you did this with such lucidity, and like intelligence and grace. And really, I mean, look at the way that so many ideas came together here. First, there's the kind of, um, the wounding or the hurt at that moment. I I could feel it at that moment to be ignored like that. Um, and then, but you brought in the the. What your photography teacher said about not, I mean, I wrote that down, doesn't think should be in the picture. And, like, that is so shocking. But You know, you were talking about it, quote, in a formal way, but because you'd already told us what your experience was, it, it was, like, very clear what you were saying, the resonance between those two things. Again, it was the shock. And, but, you know, you asked a question. You, you said, what is it with humans? And so, you know, it's kind of interesting there's this guy named Philip Lopate, and he, was, he said, he's a writer, an editor, and he said, if you bring up a question in your writing, then at some point you should answer it. So, you know, that's kind of an, a way for you if you wanted to go on with this. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, what is it about humans that has that experience? Mm-hmm. A- and then you do have the other experience of going to the groomer mm-hmm. with your dog. Mm-hmm. And so that's another story you look, you know, and so can you tell that story too? And like, but now that these stories are intertwined, it would be interesting to see how they play in and out. And, and um, there's something called a cluster where you, like you put one word at the center of a page and then you let your mind free associate. And like, if you were going to put one word at the center of, of a page, if you wanted to go on with this, what would you what would you do you think?
5: I don't know if it came out why not. Not one
1: word but two. Why not? Well, then why not put that down? <laughs> <laughs> you know that's like a, it's like a okay, so it means something to you. It'll lead you somewhere, you know? There's one more thing I say, um, the word perplexed. Yeah. That word that word is really interesting word. Like it expresses that because I am. I am. I'm perplexed by this. Well, why don't you look up that word if you wanted to. Look it up in the dictionary. Because, okay. I mean, that's an interesting word. You know, I, don't, I really don't know what the root of that word is at all, but it's kind of like another, another secret. And, uh, okay, thanks. Thanks. Thank thanks for reading that. Anybody else want to take a, a chance to hear you, what you wrote? You'd maybe, yeah, I guarantee you don't know what you have on the page. Okay, what's your name? I'm Kathy. Kathy. hi. Um, your talk has brought up several
3: things. Um, before I scooped hummus into my daughter's waiting mouth, I recognized the root of my pleasure. Comalapa, late 70s, post-earthquake. I stood in the circus tent we termed El Hospital. Supplies in our makeshift pharmacy were limited, yet I labeled each box with possible uses. Behind me, a path, and as I turned, the youngest son from the family who offered me shelter carried sweet garbanzo beans, crested in an earthen bowl. He had gleefully walked the mile to the complex to offer late-day meal, and I felt beloved. <sighs> mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can you can you feel the tremble that goes through you? Like just hearing that, what you wrote? Mm-hmm. How beautiful. And that you pass it on. That's where we start with the image of you, you know, feeding your daughter. What's what you've been fed. And in just a few words, you're able to convey the shock of being in an earthquake zone and having someone the, like the innocence of a child taking a risk and, and being so loving to you. That's, it's like it's all there, right there. You know, the, the, there's a part of me that would love to hear the, like the longer story of it. But it's so interesting. Like, did, did, did you ever put those things together before in your mind?
3: Certainly not, mm. without your Chinese restaurant mm-hmm.
1: exercise. Mm-hmm. Mm. So a garbanzo yes. bean is the link. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm. oh. You know, I was, I was just um, telling Jean yesterday about um, hearing Mr. Rogers. Mm. Um, he was the keynote speaker at a, a, a foundation conference. And the room was very uptight. And he asked people to close their eyes and to, to think of someone who'd been generous to them. And um, you got, began to hear sniffles in the room with that question. And so you went right, you went right to it, um, that there you're in a role. It's very interesting. You're in a role, I presume, as the healer or the aid, right, in that situation. Um, But, at the same time, you were receiving something back. If you were going to go on with that, where would you go, do you think?
3: Um, The entire experience of being, I went down with the medical team three days after the earthquake um, with an expectation of helping. I was the one who was out. It changed my whole perspective on life and living and death.
1: Hmm. Um, You know, there's a beautiful book, I don't know if you've read it, it's called Against Forgetting. It's so beautiful. Against Forgetting, it's by Carolyn, it's edited by Carolyn Fourchet, F O R C H E. And it's, it's called Against Forgetting, 20th Century Poetry of Witness. And it's, it's, it's really extraordinary. It's, um, you know, it's, a bit, it's Holocaust poems and et cetera, et cetera, all 20th century and in translation. Um, and I think the quote might be in that book where Elie Wiesel said, no one witnesses the witness. And so, can, you know, can you tell the whole story? Can you, have you written about it before?
3: I talked about it uh, at a Commonwealth meeting, but it's not the same. I couldn't have uh, kept a straight voice, <laughs> thought about so many other things.
1: you know, that technique of the cluster might be of use. It's so much freer than doing an outline, you know? And if you just wrote down like words and impressions on the page, uh, it's a little bit like um, like a painter putting out paints on a, on, a ca- on a palette and then you get to use which, what you want. You know, uh, I hope you write, I hope you write the whole story. Thank you. Yeah, sure, thanks for reading. Um, so, I, we have some more time. Be brave. Substitute inquiry. Ken. Ken. Okay, read slowly. Please read slowly.
6: After struggling with fear and panic and pain for years and years, I sat and watched my child create and play with abandon. And abandon, I had sought and fought and drank and written and cried and raged to find again. Something stolen from me long ago, partly by myself, partly by camp never could and 110% situations, solidified with a belt and an undying love and yearning for acceptance from this person. But now, I sit in the gloaming light of my kitchen table, watching my daughter draw with abandon and innate confidence, the most beautiful mermaid surrounded by sunset and rainbows and mountains. Almost the view from our window. And I am beloved. Ah. Ah.
1: Beautiful. Oh, so, was that different for you than writing in your journal? Because you had said before you, you came from the point of view of a journal. Is that is this different yeah, at all? I was just
6: asking you early just questions. Yeah. I don't really journal per se. What, did I, this... I started blogging a little bit, but it's a different thing. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and and okay, so oh my gosh. And you know it's interesting? Look how you went into the present tense. I am sitting in my kitchen. You know, like it's as if you're back there and it's totally alive. Yeah. yeah. And what you wanted is being presented in someone you love so much. And, you know, it was quite wonderful. The, the fact that there's a mermaid in the picture, but it's almost your view out the window. Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's believable. It's very, very lovely and playful in that. Thank you. It sounds like you have more to write. I think so. You know, it sounds like there's more to write about that... That belt and that figure, you know, too. Um, Did you ever read the book Bird by Bird? No. It's fun. It's by um, Annie Lamott. Oh, Annie Lamott? Annie Lamott. Annie Lamott. um, Oh,
6: she's local. She's in Fairfax. Yeah. yeah.
1: She she, she has this one idea in the book that says um, you can take, imagine you have a one-inch picture frame, and then you start to write from whatever you see in that little picture frame. And so you could go, what you could do is go back to see what you wrote mm-hmm. and, like, which are the little doors or which are the, like, I'm just saying belt, you know. What if you start with a picture of the belt, for example? Um, and you can think about, do you ever see an advent calendar?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's like, in, a, in any kind of thing you write, it's kind of like an advent calendar and you decide, like, which little windows and doors to open. And, like, that's how you can go further, mm-hmm. cool. you know. Yeah, great. Thanks for thanks for thanks for uh, reading and also for uh, recording. <laughs> but it's really important that the recorder get to read. Well, every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Who would like? Would you like to read? I oh, will read. Yeah. Go right ahead. How fantastic! I um,
0: experimented by starting most every sentence with before. Before my 60th birthday, when I felt so beloved, I would have wondered if I ever really had a family at all. Before I knew what would happen to me that day, I had prepared a poem, a stanza, for each person as a gift who would come to the party. Before writing the poem, I envisioned tiny packages sitting in the back porch of my mind in sunlight, waiting for someone to give them to the right person. Before any of this, I learned that giving presents was a way of communicating how much I cared about someone. Before choosing or making a present, I would carefully remember what was special, the characteristics of that person, the color of their eyes, their choice in clothing, the books they read, the way they smelled, the foods they favored. Before deciding on the exact present, I would try to imagine what they would not give to themselves what was too wacky or delirious, too expensive, too frivolous, too gaudy, perhaps something more than what they deserved? Before we give something to ourselves, do we consider what others will think of us? Before we tell anyone anyone how much we have, are we careful to make the calculation of what is allowed in our personal universe? Before we accept anything new about ourselves, do we test the waters to see how much we can tolerate? How many gifts we can receive? How much goodness we can take in? How much truth we can actually share with others? How beloved we can become after years of living alone?
1: Hmm. Oh, I feel like it's really a teaching story. I mean, with you as a healer and the generosity. I'd love to hear those questions again. Would you read, read those questions again, okay?
0: Before we give to ourselves, do we consider what others will think of us? Before we tell anyone how much we have, are we careful to make the calculation of what is allowed in our personal universe? Before we accept anything new about ourselves, do we test the waters to see how much we can tolerate, how many gifts we can receive, how much goodness we can take in, how much truth about ourselves can actually be shared with others, how beloved we can become after years of
1: living alone. Well, it's just a poem in its own right. But what I want to urge you is, you know, it sounds like each of those questions um, need the response of a story. Like, how is it that you come to ask those questions? Like, you know something about that in your own experience. And it was just fantastic. like after, after asking those questions that you like do it's almost like, you know the way um, so many poems have a quote at the beginning, either by, by someone else. It's almost like you could begin like that and like ask the question and put it in italics and then mm-hmm. and then answer it, tell a story. like, how did you come to know that, John? You know. And what a fantastic what a, what a fantastic thing you did to give stanzas, to give poetry to people, particularly of something they wouldn't or couldn't give themselves. And the beauty of the sunlight on the packages. Story as gift.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks. How are we doing with time? How about if we have one more story, and then we'll just open things up to questions and, and discussion? Um, who feels like theirs is not really good, but somehow it connected with something in yourself? And, and maybe you feel like a child, but you still get to read it. Can you read it? Anybody? OK, I'll tell you about Twyla Tharp. <laughs> I'm the choreographer. <laughs> Twyla Tharp um, talks about, like, making work and not necessarily... She calls it muck- going into a room and mucking around, and she may come up with a phrase, you know, a movement, and then that may be it, and everything else gets thrown away, but there's that one phrase that remains and, and gets, she says, recycled into another piece or gets used. It's, um, so... Would anybody be willing to read a piece and let's just listen together and we'll hear where the line is, a line or a word that actually might be the be the touchstone for something else for you. Anybody? Yeah, thanks. Susan. Okay, just read loudly enough and slowly enough so we can all hear you, okay?
4: Uh, so often after leaving dinner with LaSalle after the leaving dinner with LaSalle I recognized that I have a wonderful adult son the dinner was bittersweet with people I loved and others that had disappointed me and others that I was angry with and I wished for it to be over soon and also to never end Alex wasn't there it wasn't that I didn't know then what a wonderful person my son is but it was later, after he was away in college, that I had better I had a better opportunity to see who he is as he stands alone. What I knew then was that life is precarious and you don't always know what is yet to come even the following day. <coughs> yet afloat in the murky pond of emotions that evening, it was clear to me that love looked what love looked like when it stood naked and clear what it looked like coming toward me and being emitted from my depths, that never changes. Other times are difficult and dark and joyous and colorful and tragic and calm, simple and exasperating. The times of unconditional love experienced, experienced etch into the heart and live in perpetuity. So too does the recognition that whether I've done it well or poorly, have given or forgotten, or played no real role at all. My child has grown into a wonderful adult all on his own. And he's pretty lucky to have a
1: mother who sees such subtlety. Mm -hmm. I love the image of him coming toward you. Well, love love, what was the phrase you used, what love looks like, and then coming toward me, it was so embodied at that moment. And also, I mean, I, I, what I appreciated was your, your truth-telling about the dinner party, you know, even though we, we don't know lots of things about it, but we know certain emotional tones. Could you read, read that again at the beginning, because, you know, there are people that you want to be with, you want the evening to even be over the others, you know, there's that lovely human collectivity. Would you mind reading that again?
4: The dinner was bittersweet with people I loved and others that had disappointed me and others that I was angry with. And I wished for it to be over soon and also never end.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. Isn't that fantastic? Mm -hmm.
1: It's, It's... you know, people would kill for, for that paragraph. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, how do you write about a whole collection of people in a succinct way? And you did. And it made me, I mean, it made me, like, completely fascinated. And I wanted to know more. And also, I also felt like, I think I appreciated you being willing to say that, you know, certain things irritated you. That was that was great and so you know as a narrator I would believe you I would believe what's coming next because it it felt like you weren't like trying to paint a certain kind of picture in that way and it was also really interesting that you had this spatial quality of when Alex is at a distance that you have a clear, clear seeing of him You know what you might it might be really fun for you to do um, to Think of times when he was right close next to you physically, and think of times when you see him move into the distance. I mean, just make a list of, like, spatial times, you know? And when, like, when was he the farthest away? Where was he when he was the farthest away? And even then, as I say that to you, does that mean physically in the world? Does it mean emotionally, you know?
5: I, I love that I wished for it to be over and also it, for it to never end. Mm-hmm. And from the whole piece, I really felt tensions. You know, she really, all throughout, just um, illuminated the tensions of, of intimacy and proximity and distance. And like what you just even said, that when he's close, Sometimes when someone's close, you really want them to get out of your face. (laughs) And then when they're away, you really want to pull, you want them to be close. So all those tensions were really just
1: beautifully, beautifully cute. Yeah. And isn't that connected to, like, the the idea where they talk about attraction and aversion? Mm -hmm. You know, what you push away, what you want to draw closer to you. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, there's... I don't know. Did you ever read? Um, oh, he's an anthropologist, and he wrote about space and time. He wrote a book about space. N- Edward Hall. Hall. Edward Hall. This is why collective thinking is so good. Um, Edward Hall, and he. So he he wrote about spatial zones. That actually, there's zones like there's the there's the intimate zone, there's the personal zone, there's the public zone, there's the social zone, and they actually have you know like. So and so inches to so and so inches, and it's really. And what is it like when someone is like when your baby was born? Like how close were you to him? Like you can't even see when, at a certain point, you know. But you're seeing in another way.
0: Thanks. And knowing Susan a little bit, she's been looking forward to Alex coming. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I can feel him.
1: (laughs) The prodigal Um, son. um,
0: And and really that. That tension that you talked about um, is so much in the work of writing as healing, um, as coming close and going away and and holding it out and and bringing it close to you. And I think one of the great gifts that Irene Borger brings to all of us is her ability to work with all of it. And and in the words of Adrienne Rich, uh, the genius of the spider is that she can spin and weave at the same time. I think that's who Irene mm. is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to say thank you, Irene Forger, for being with us at the New
1: School today. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. There's one thing I want to be, give you a PS because Jean had asked me what kinds of stories do people need? And I thought, I mean, there, there's a lot to say about that, but I'll just say one thing, which is um, the thing about a, writing a story is you can make it as long as you want to, so you can hold it and, and contemplate it and be with it, um, even though things may be gone. And I think that's what, I think that's so much about what people write about, actually, like being able to, to be with something for as long as you want it to. And and Lydia Davis wrote this book, she's a wonderful translator and and writer, and she she wrote this book about the end of a relationship, and she said she actually spent more time writing the book than she was in the relationship. (laughs) So anyway, thank you so much for inviting me, and um, it's a pleasure. Please
0: come back again. Thank you. Thank
1: you.